Welcome to our fourth quarter 2020 legislative and regulatory update. My name is Annette Bechtold and I'm the Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Compliance here at One Digital. Joining me today is Samantha Molliver, our Managing Director of Compliance Consulting. And we're going to take you through a number of things today. Sam's going to go through and tell you a couple of the items that we'll discuss. So we have a few things we're gonna to discuss today. So as always, we kind of break it down into kind of the different areas um, as they relate to um, our legislation. First will be the legislative and the executive update. So Annette will be talking a little bit about the focus on the lame duck session and then um, the new administration priorities. Then we'll move over to kind of the judicial updates and I'll take you through two kind of Supreme Court cases. I'm sure one you've already heard is re relates to the Affordable Care Act and the constitutionality. And then the other one you may or may not have heard of deals with pharmacy benefit managers. And then finally, we'll round out with kind of our regulatory update. Um, we have some updates on limits and then Annette will talk about the transparency rule. Great. So jumping in, taking a look at the legislative and executive update. I mean, to say that that um, there's been a lot of eventful things going on or a lot of um, uh, different uh, activity let's put it that way, has, is an understatement. So there's lots of things. What do we focus on? Continuing resolution is really important. We talked about that last quarter, and I've got some updates for you there. And then also uh, with regards to what we could see with the budget bill that has to be passed, could there be some healthcare things added onto it? We'll talk about that along with what's left in the election process, how does this work, what is the democratic health care platform kind of based on, and what could we uh, possibly see from the from a Biden-Harris transition in the first 100 days. So last time when we were together, we talked about the continuing resolution. And if you remember, the continuing resolution is what's used when the 12 appropriation bills are not passed on time. So the fiscal year for the federal government runs from October 1st through September 30th. And Congress has to pass these 12 spending bills in order to keep the government operating. And if they don't do it by September 30th, it, basically there would be a government shutdown. Well, um, they didn't this year, and it is pretty customary that they don't um, actually get the spending bills done. We see that more times than, than not. So in fact, um, the last time that a budget was actually passed without a continuing resolution, meaning it was passed on time, was back in 1996. Um, and in 2007, 2011, and 2013, they never actually even authorized new spending bills, like just kept... Um, passing these continuing resolutions to push the, the existing budget forward and just keep operating on that same budget. So it isn't uncommon that this, uh, this happens. So you can kind of see, you know, what happens during a shutdown or not, but we, we aren't really in that boat at this point in time. There was a continuing resolution passed. It was passed saying, hey, we're going to continue the same operating budget through December 11th. And that was passed um, on October 1st. And then, um, of course, a couple day, uh, days before this December 11th um, deadline, they had not come up with the, the new spending bills nor agreed on them. And so, therefore, they passed uh, another continuing resolution. And that authorizes this existing budget to operate through this Friday, December 18th. Now, it is likely that they will pass um, 
they will pass some spending bills that are looking to do that, or they may push and have another continuing resolution, giving giving themselves a little bit more time. So we'll see what happens. They've been working hard on trying to um, uh, to agree on all of the spending bills, and and they're pretty close, I think. Now. Any time that uh, these spending bills go through, and especially if there's some urgency in doing so, it very often some things that have bipartisan support or that people are in favor of can be tacked onto the spending bill and passed in into um, into law. And so there's a couple of things with healthcare that we that I think we might see. Um, and that could be added. They've done some work on the surprise billing, and we've talked about that before. Remember, surprise billing are those balance bills that patients receive from um, hospitals or physicians for typically for out of network. So in an emergency situation, they're taken to an out of network hospital or treated by an out of network physician. And then they get these large balance bills because it's an out of network service. That and, or they could also be going to a network hospital, network physician, but they're treated by somebody during the time that they're of their stay in the hospital by a physician that they haven't chosen that happens to be out of network. So it's an involuntary out of network um, physician that might see them. And that would be like your anesthesiologist or a radiologist, somebody you're not picking. Um, so either this emergency care or inadvertently you're being treated out of network and you get these large bills. It also happens a lot with air ambulance, which there are no, there are no air ambulance in network. So uh, there's been a lot of work. Um, this is something that has incredible bipartisan support to get rid of and take the patient out of the middle of these balance bills, which I think is great. And so just, um, gosh, within the last day, they have actually passed a bill out of committee um, and that's got that's getting some traction. So in this particular bill, this could very well be tacked on and pass. And so what this bill does is it holds patients harmless from surprise billing. And it includes air ambulance as well, which is really an awesome win on that um, because people are getting you know tens of thousands of dollars. A $60,000 balance bill just from air, air ambulance is a lot to take. Um, now, the other thing it does is it limits liability for individuals to the in-network cost sharing only. So in these emergency situations or inadvertently being treated by an out-of-network doctor prohibits them from charging more than the in-network cost sharing to the patient. So just deductible or out-of-pocket that belongs in network uh, or that's part of your in-network benefits, that's all that the patient would have to pay. It also prohibits or limits um, some ancillary service out-of-pocket amounts. And also, uh, it would limit, um, it would actually eliminate um, the out-of-network uh, cost sharing if the, if the patient doesn't have any there's no patient consent within 72 hours of that service. So um, those are really great. Now, what it does is it uses a median rate to determine what the health plan is going to pay that on a network doctor. So the non-network doctor or, or provider will bill whatever they bill, but the, the insurance carrier or the health plan will only have to pay whatever the median rate is. So what are what's the going rate for that particular service in that area? And then um, 
after that, if they have some sort of dispute, uh, there is uh, that where the health plan, the provider can agree, um, they can, either either party can invoke um, and go to arbitration and it becomes a binding arbitration. So it does, um, it does definitely end surprise air ambulance bills, which is good. Now group and individual plans have to include in-network and out-of-network deductibles and out-of-pockets on their plan materials or on the ID cards so that those are known at the time of service. So this is a pretty good win. There, um, the arbitration is not what we would choose. Um, not, definitely not. Um, we like the the paying the going rate for a, a particular service because um, that kind of puts every everybody on a level playing field. But the concern about the arbitration is if those if um, the health plan is having to pay higher costs than the going rate for whatever reason, this could add additional costs to the patient and to the plan participants, not necessarily for that service per se, but those costs will hit the plan. And then that comes back to people in the form of premium, et cetera. So it's not what we would choose. And we'll continue to to talk about some of that, but this could be a bill that we see get tacked on. The other one um, definitely is um, COVID relief. Um, Obviously they've been trying to work on a COVID relief bill. And so right now um, they're down to, uh, you know, it started at the trillions of dollars. And then there was a skinny plan that the Senate came up with that um, the house didn't like. Um, And so, uh, right now, they're down to this bill that's about $748 billion. So um, it's amazing to think that we're down to $748 billion. Um, but that's the, the, there's a whole group of bipartisan lawmakers ha- who've been working on this, that this is what they're, they've agreed to. President-elect Biden seems to be on board with that in support of it as well. And the provisions of that bill can include things like help for, you know, more PPP loan money, um, uh, reinstating some of the unemployment um, for folks, also help to schools, vaccine distribution, um, also some for transit and transportation assistance, rural internets in there, postal service assistance, maybe some help um, or extension on the FFCRA. So those leave laws may be extended. Do they start over January 1? Because those do expire come here in December, December 31st. Uh, There could be a round of stimulus checks in there. And of course, state and local funding. So funding to help those frontline workers in states because states have taken a hit. This is a big issue for the Democratic Party, for the House specifically, and something Nancy Pelosi's been fighting for is more aid at the state and local level. And very often that's been some of the big dollars in this particular COVID relief bill and in others. And so this seems to be one of the bigger bones of contention, just trying to keep it in more manageable uh, financial numbers since there's such a a big debt that's come from COVID-19 in the first place. So we'll see what they agree on, but it could be very interesting if this kind of tax on this gives a whole new round of funding in a number of different ways. And so we'll see more over the next few days on that. When we talk about the remaining steps in the election, there's a few things that we want to keep in mind. So the Constitution states that electors are supposed to meet on the same day across the country, and each one kind of set, each state sort of sets their own process for that. Um, and so 
it's been really an interesting process to watch, you know, before 2016, nobody really paid attention to who the electors were a whole lot. But then, um, you know, since then it's become really, um, something that, um, has been a focus and definitely the democratic electors and that have really mounted this national campaign in looking at and supporting um, uh, and making sure that, you know, they have, they don't have faithless electoral voters Um, in history. Sometimes there's been uh, faithless electoral uh, votes. And so what that means is that somebody's broken from the ranks, maybe the, the um, they're supposed to be the state said, Hey, we're voting for the democratic candidate, but then they've, they've made a change. So if we look back in um, the 2016 election, five Democratic electors um, actually chose Clinton in, uh, or chose uh, Trump instead of Clinton. And then two Republicans chose Clinton instead of Trump. And so those are called kind of, they're not voting with their party, if you will. This did not happen this time. Um, they're also many states have laws that actually punish people for being these faithless electors and they can be removed or fined. Um, And earlier this year, the Supreme Court actually unanimously upheld those laws as being constitutional. And so um, what we'll see, what we've seen is that there has been no break with the ranks and that the Democrats have voted um, for Biden and the Republicans for Trump. So we haven't seen anything different. The last, uh, the next step is that the Senate is up a little bit up for grabs of who will have control of the of the Senate. We know that the House um, control will stay with the Democratic Party, but at a much smaller margin than they had in this past um, past 116th Congress. So they will have fewer seats than they held before. So there's not a big difference between the number of seats, um, not as big of a difference, um, actually much smaller than they've had in the past but it still is a democratic majority. Um, The Senate is uh, up to the kind of rests with these final two um, Georgia Senate races. And so both uh, the Senate seats in Georgia are up for a, um, they had runoff elections. Those, uh, the, Early voting for runoff elections started on Monday, December 14th, and um, they will the race will be called on January 5th. So not until the 5th will we really know who where the majority is in the Senate. Um, so that's something to watch. They had record turnouts um, on Monday, uh, the first day uh, in Georgia for voting. So we'll see what happens there. And then uh, the very next day, Congress gets together under the, pres- uh, the presider of the current standing vice president, who's Mike Pence, and they will formally count and certify those electoral votes. And at that point in time, that's when officially the president will be named. And then on the 20th will be the inauguration. So all of those things are still yet to to transpire as we think about the next pieces in that executive process. Now, when we look at the Democratic platform, so we've got the House that has this the um, Democratic majority, and then we look at President-elect Biden, assuming that nothing changes and something um strange doesn't happen on that January 6th date. Um, 
President-elect Biden, um, he has some various particular ideas uh, as far as what he would like to see with healthcare. And so I put a couple of things on, on here about what um, some basic foundations and premise, because these always help you kind of understand the decisions that they may make or the things that they bring forward or where they have some focus. And so he, you know, he, his focus really is that every American has a right to peace of mind, that they know that they have access to affordable quality care, that um, nobody has to what, lay in bed. He says at night, staring at the ceiling, wondering what will I do if somebody gets breast cancer or has a heart attack, or I just can't, I can't afford him that, or my child is sick. And so that is, um, that's going to be um, top of mind as they start putting together, you know, where they're going to focus coming forward. So a big piece is building on the Affordable Care Act. So one of the pillars of the uh, Affordable Care Act, when it was passed, uh, originally passed, and it's in the law, is that the secretary of HHS had has to create a public option. That's never been done um, because there was plenty of private market options and they were getting everything up and running. But this is something that um, President-elect Biden has talked about. Now, there's many different kinds of public options. Um, The things that he um, is in favor of, you can see there, um, basically um, expanding Medicaid, if you will. So having more of the lower income folks um, be eligible through these public option plans um, for subsidized type coverage. And so that's what you'll see there. Now he's also talked about um, lowering the Medicare age, whether that comes to fruition or not, I think there's some economic issues with Medicare and refunding that they'll have to tackle first. but that remains to be seen. But this is one of the first places that that he's mentioned he's going to focus when they get to the healthcare piece. So we'll see if that comes to fruition. Another piece is on prescription drugs. Now this is where they uh, are fairly similar to the current administration in that the cost of prescription drugs are just is just too high, and there, there has to be a ma- ways or methodologies for getting rid of that. How do we limit that? How do we make that smaller? And so um, he is in favor of allowing Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices. This is something that can be done through HHS. Um, There was a bill that got published to do that um, back in gosh, was that 2019? I'm not sure. Not a bill, I shouldn't say. It was a rule that came out um, from HHS and it was pulled back. Um, and not never implemented, but it looks like something similar is really where um, Biden is on that that path of thinking of how are we going to to manage that. Let's start with the places we can control, which would be Medicare, because that's a federal program. Um, other provisions, um, just some things, uh, you know, surprise billing that might get taken care of here uh, very shortly anyway. Um, aggressively enforcing antitrust, um, making sure that there's healthy competition. I mean, some of these things, as you uh, you look at it, there's some things that he differs with the Trump administration, th- some things that are the same or similar interests. So there will be some things that are will continue on and other things that will be newly in introduced. So time will tell, but these are some of the basic things that he's talked about on the campaign. Now, during the lame duck session, which is the session right now where a new um, 
we've got a new Congress coming in and we have a new uh, president and administration, and, but we have people who are continuing on their jobs in the current administration until that time. And that's what they is known as the lame duck session. And so what are the areas of focus when we look at um, the leaders of the Democratic Party and and during this lame duck and what things they'll be working on and also the member current members of Congress. So altogether, they all agree that the congressional focus needs to be to figure out this pandemic aid. What's the next bill to produce that? So you've got um, both the incoming and the current who are trying to figure out what do we do next providing relief to businesses, working families. Um, the, um, the one place I think that that they differ from the current uh, the current Congress is uh, they they're really focused on trying to get more money for state and local governments, um, which is a which is a significant number of dollars to help keep uh, frontline workers on payroll, et cetera. That's been kind of the one where they don't necessarily agree. Expanding unemployment and uh, affordable health care for millions. I mean, that's what every everybody has been trying to do since, uh, you know, since um, the Clinton administration. So, and then um, the other focus that they'll have coming in is, is working on the job side. So if we kind of look over to the transition, there's been a couple of things that have stood out and that, um, uh, President-elect Biden and, and Harris have stated that they're going to focus on the very specific places. So look to focus at, in these four areas. COVID-19, of course, is going to be number one for anybody coming in. Um, economic recovery, racial equity, um, definitely climate change. So um, those are some of the areas that they want to kind of act very swiftly on and work on. Um, the other thing is they've, they've got on the COVID-19 fronts. I just kind of gave you a few things. They have kind of, here's their seven point plan of how they're going to tackle the pandemic. They want to ensure that everybody's got regular and reliable and free testing. So um, I think that's pretty much been established. Um, that's been done through regulation. So it looks like they'll be continuing that um, that tax. That's not something that's going to change. They want to um, fix person the personal protective equipment problems. They want to make sure that um, they'll use the Defense Production Act to ramp up production, um, create stockpiles, etc. That was also done. Um, that's consistent with Trump's executive order to do the same to make sure that we're never caught off, uh, you know, off our front foot again, or caught on our back foot and not, not have the supplies in-house here in our country to take care of our folks. And so that's also, they also agree there um, in, in doing that. The, the next one is to have clear, consistent evidence-based guidance for how communities should navigate the pandemic. There's been so many um, theories. We should wear masks. We shouldn't wear masks. <laughs> there's, there's so many things. They want to make sure that that is much clearer when to open, when to close, and be more prescriptive about how and when that happens. Um, so that'll be interesting to see what maybe they do differently in that. Um, and they will call on Congress to pass emergency package to ensure schools have additional resources to um, adapt 
um, appropriately. Uh, the next thing that they that they're they'll plan for is for obviously the equitable distribution of the vaccines, which are already starting now. So the first vaccines are coming out. I'm not sure how you know what that transition will be. That'll already be in play. So we'll probably hear more about that as. Um, some are taking the vaccine, some are using it, and then they figure out what and how they need. So that'll continue. Everybody has that same. I think that's also pretty consistent um, that we want to make sure a high risk um, um, folks are taken care of first. And so I, and that's, um, that seems to be pretty much consistent with the current distribution methodology as well. And then to rebuild and expand defenses to predict, prevent, and mitigate pandemic threats, including those coming from China. So um, again, kind of relaunching and re-strengthening um, some international development pathogen tracking programs and some different um initiatives with the CDC. And then finally, to implement mask mandates nationwide by working governors and mayors and asking Americans to do what they can to step up in a crisis. So that's really where they're going to try to focus on the COVID piece. So think about that with your business, um, you know, how that might and watching for that and how that might affect you will be some things in the first 100 days that we'll, we'll want to hone in on. With that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Samantha to talk about the Affordable Care Act and some of the judicial updates. Thanks, Annette. I think there's a lot of great information you provided. Um, so I wanted to talk about kind of what's going on from the judicial standpoint. So I'm going to talk about two kind of court cases. The first one is I'm sure a lot of you have heard about is the Affordable Care Act and how they heard oral arguments. Um, those were heard on November 10th. Uh, 2020. I also wanted to plug, if you didn't attend our previous employer advisory session, Annette and I were joined by two of our other colleagues, and we went a little bit more in depth, not just talking about kind of the legal analysis, but a little bit more practical about the uh, oral arguments. So I would highly suggest going back and re-listening to that session. Um, it's available on our website. But just kind of as a, you know, background. So what this whole case stems around is section 5000A of the ACA, often known as the individual mandate. Um, and that is this provision that essentially gives uh, individuals kind of this choice. So either you have to obtain mineral central coverage or you have to pay the individual shared responsibility penalty. So this isn't the first time that the Supreme Court has actually heard the argument on this provision. It was actually heard back in 2012. And the court held on a five to four decision that the mandate was permissible um, they deemed it a tax and that it was valid under Congress's authority to tax and spend. What's changed since then is that in 2017, under President Trump, he released or issued um, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which basically zeroed out that penalty. Um, and so because of that zeroing out, the argument was that there's no longer generating revenue. It's now a tax. Therefore, these 20 Republican state generals, uh, attorney generals and Republican governors uh, led by Texas, brought suit in Texas in 2018, basically wanting to revisit that 2012 court decision. And as I mentioned, it was due to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act in which Congress set the penalty for not purchasing MEC coverage to be zero dollars. Um, as I mentioned, they argued that the, con the mandate is unconstitutional. And then they further argued that the mandate is so essential to the ACA that it cannot be severed from the rest of the law so that the entire ACA should be struck down. 
Um, just a little bit more background on it. The plaintiffs were also later joined by two individual plaintiffs who lived in Texas and purchased unsubsidized marketplace coverage. Many may believe that they added these people just to bolster their argument on standing, which we'll talk a little bit about later. Um, within that court, that district court, the federal judge did agree with the plaintiffs and they declared the entire ACA to be invalid. Um, but he did issue a stay and a partial final judgment, which just basically means you know, I send this up to the higher court, see what they say. The law is still intact, but my ruling is that it's the ACA is unconstitutional. So from there, the Department of Justice and the Democratic Attorney Generals or the respondents appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals on a two to one decision partially affirmed or agreed with the district court, agreeing that the mandate now as is with that zeroed out penalty is unconstitutional, but they sent it back down for that district court to decide whether um, it's severable or not, so basically asking for analysis. From there, kind of following the standard process that we see with a lot of court cases, the Democratic Attorney General appealed to the Supreme Court to have them hear the case. The Supreme Court um, agreed to hear it on March 2nd, 2020, and oral arguments were held on November 10th, 2020, which was just a week after the election. So kind of the main three core arguments or the issues of the litigation, um, was basically threefold. Um, first one being whether the plaintiffs had standing to sue. The second being the constitutionality of the individual mandate. And then finally, um, whether the rest of the ACA could be severed if the mandate is unconstitutional. Oral arguments lasted about two hours. There were four parties that uh, you know went before the justices. And the justices did ask pointed questions a lot on standing and constitutionality. So the first issue with standing is really kind of more procedural. Uh, do we have the right parties in court? Do these parties that are bringing the suit, do they actually have the ability or does this court have jurisdiction to make this decision? So really standing is just saying that a plaintiff needs to have suffered an injury that is fairly traceable to the conduct of the defendant and that can be likely redressed by a favorable decision. So can the Supreme Court even remedy the issue that they're claiming they're having or the injury that they have? What's big about standing is that if they cannot prove standing, the court won't even look at the merit of the case. They won't even decide whether it's constitutional or not. They'll just throw the case out and say, don't, you don't have standing. You're not the right parties. You don't have, um, you can't bring this case here. So we're not even going to look at whether it's constitutional or severable and the law will remain intact. The Democratic Attorney General argument is that the plaintiffs did not have standing, basically saying that there was no injury because it's a zero dollar penalty and that any decision to purchase health insurance is a self-inflicted injury that in and of itself does not create standing. The plaintiffs, however, offered seven bases to justify their standing requirements, and it really advanced in two during the oral arguments. First being increased enrollment in the state health program, such as Medicaid and the state's employee health plan, and then also higher administrative costs from ACA-related reporting requirements. So think of your employer report, reporting requirements for 1094, 1095s, um, they were claiming they had this kind of financial injury, and that's why they have standing. Um, the justices did kind of raise this concern because what they were arguing is kind of this thing called standing through inseverability, um, basically saying that the plaintiffs aren't saying they're harmed directly from the individual mandate itself, but from other provisions from the ACA. And it's because of the, the argument that the individual mandate is so essential to the rest of the ACA that that's how they can you know, bring it in and say that they have standing. Um, the justices seemed a bit weary on this theory. I think the chief justice suggested that the theory really kind of maybe expands standing dramatically, but we will see. 
um, what they have to say later on. The second argument, so if they do prove they have standing, is whether the mandate itself is unconstitutional. So really the questions of questions posed by the justices generally fall into kind of two main themes. First being whether the mandate could be read as a choice. So do uh, individuals have a choice to purchase individual coverage or minimal essential coverage or pay a penalty? Or is it really a legal command to purchase? Um, and then the other one being, well, whether or not is the provision simply inoperative or precatory, which really is more of a request or a wish. The Democratic parties um, argue that the mandate is still best read to be an encouragement. It's not a requirement for Americans to purchase health insurance and that this provision still falls within Congress's authority. They argue that it still should be upheld because it falls under Congress's taxing power, even if it's temporarily suspended. And they argue that nothing prohibits Congress from reducing a valid tax to zero while leaving the statute intact to allow Congress to return to that framework and generate revenue later. So that's kind of the argument is they didn't actually strike the full provision. They just changed the number to zero. So the argument is their intent was they could go back at a later date and add in that number. I think there have been other uh, laws out there that have these taxes that phase in or phase out. So that's really what they were arguing. The plaintiffs, however, argue that it is a command now because there is no choice. It's just basically saying you have to go purchase minimal central coverage, and therefore it cannot be saved under Congress's tax power or the Commerce Clause. And additionally, since the mandate no longer raises revenue because it's zeroed out, it cannot also be saved by the Commerce Clause. There's no actual tax. There's nothing that's being generated. Finally, if they do determine whether or not that they do determine the provision is unconstitutional, the question then comes whether the ACA is severable or whether the rest of the ACA is severable. So here, the Supreme Court precedent really does direct the court to limit damages to damage to the statute and try to be guided by con uh, congressional intent. Um, there's a strong presumption of severability. And I think it was Justice Kavanaugh who made the comment that Congress knows how to draft in severability clause. So it seemed like they may be leaning more towards severability. Um, but again, they could be just asking these devil advocate type of questions to help bolster their opinion. The decision, the decision for this is likely to come out at the end of the Supreme Court's term, which is June 2021. If we look at some potential outcomes, first being that they could find that there's no standing and then they just throw the court case out and then the challenge will no longer be looked at. Someone else would have to bring suit um, and the ACA would remain intact as it is. Um, they could find that the provision is constitutional. Maybe they say it falls under the Commerce Clause, or maybe it falls under a separate congressional pow uh, power, which could be the Necessary and Proper Clause. They could find that it is unconstitutional, but severable. Maybe they just strike that one provision, or maybe they strike other provisions of the ACA, but not the ACA as a whole. And then finally, they could just say, nope, it's inseverable. All the ACA is stricken. And if they did this, it likely would be done on a phased out timetable. I don't think it would be, you know, next day light switch turns off. On another side, we could see congressional action. Um, we do may have a new administration coming in. They may go in and amend the law. I think also looking at the questions posed by the justices, essentially, maybe Congress can go back and in and change the dollar amount. So maybe they add back in a dollar amount. So then it would go back to the 2012 kind of analysis that there is this generation of revenue, or they could just go back and strike the provision or amend the ACA in a different way. Awesome. So, so we're waiting. 
<laughs> so are we. So for the time being, it's status quo. The ACA is still law of the land. Mm-hmm. Nothing's changed. I think we, you know, it's just the the joy of 2020. We still just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the year that keeps giving. The, um, we have uh, um, the actual outcome, you know, the Supreme Court, um, they're, they run from October to June. And so it's unlikely, right? We're not going to see anything probably till the very end before they recess in June of 2021, right? Yeah, I don't think it's likely. I think just because it's such a big case, uh, they're likely going to take a little bit more time to decide on this one. Yeah, to deliberate. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Awesome. Thank you. That was yeah. that was a great rundown, Sam. <laughs> like I mentioned, if you want to learn a little bit more about others' opinions besides my, you know, regurgitation of what they talked about, I highly suggest watching that old uh, employer session we did. Awesome. Thanks. <clears throat> so there was another court case that came. This is actually a decision that came up from the Supreme Court, and it came out late last week on the 10th of December. Um, and maybe you have heard of it, probably not. It seems to be a little known case, but it's called Rutledge versus the Pharmaceutical Care Management Association or PCMA. And really the question here was posed whether a state law regulating pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs is preempted by ERISA, which is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, which is a big federal law that governs employee uh, benefit plans. Um, So just kind of a little bit of background, PBMs, I'm not sure if you all know, but they act as intermediaries between the pharmacy and prescription drug plans. So they reimburse pharmacies for the cost of drugs covered by prescription drug plans. So when a beneficiary goes to the pharmacy to fill out a prescription, the pharmacy checks with the PBM to determine the person's coverage and copayment information. After that beneficiary leaves, the PBM reimburses the pharmacy for the prescription, less the amount of the beneficiary's copayment, and then the prescription drug plan in turn reimburses the PBM. So to determine that reimbursement rate for each drug, PBMs develop and administer these maximum allowable costs or these MAC lists, which is essentially the PBM's contracted rates. So in 2015, which kind of was the stem of this uh, lawsuit, Arkansas passed what's called Act 900, which basically regulates the minimum prices at which PBMs must reimburse Arkansas pharmacies. The act requires those PBMs to require a pharmacy for generic drugs at a price that is at least equal to the wholesale invoice amount that the the pharmacy paid for the drug inventory. It also mandates that the PBMs uh, use updated MAC lists and also permit appeals. And then finally, which I think is interesting, is it gives pharmacies the discretion to decline to dispense when a particular transaction would cause them to lose money. So prior to the passes of this state law, PBMs were found to reimburse pharmacies at less than the pharmacy's cost to acquire the drug. So they pharmacies were losing out on money. So this caused a lot of pharmacies, especially those in the rural area or independent pharmacies to go out of business. So Arkansas passed this law in 2015. This Pharmaceutical Care Management Association, which is a national trade association, filed suit saying that this state law is preempted by ERISA. Um, This district court sided with the PCMA, stated that, yep, ERISA pre-exempts it. You don't have to follow it. Um, Appealed to the Eighth Circuit. Again, they agreed that the lower court decision, yep, it's pre-exempted. Therefore, it moved up to the Supreme Court to make the decision. So why do we really care about ERISA pre-exemption? Again, it kind of goes back to the Constitution. There's this supremacy clause that says federal law will pre-exempt state law, essentially block it from enforcement. 
And for ERISA purposes, um, ERISA will pre-exempt state law that relates to an ERISA plan. So again, we're going to be looking at a lot of legal jargon, legal analysis to determine whether this law relates to, so does it have a direct reference to or a connection to, or does it have an indirect impact, which would mean that the state law doesn't apply, you would follow federal. And since federal doesn't have anything on PBMs, essentially the PBMs can still do what they wish. The Supreme Court, interestingly enough, unanimously held that, nope, they reversed the decision. Um, ERISA does not pre-exempt this state law um, because they said it doesn't have any connection with nor reference to an ERISA plan. They found that the state law was really more of a form of cost regulation, and it applies equally to all PBMs and pharmacies in Arkansas. It's not impermissibly connected to an ERISA plan. Um, specifically, you know, the law doesn't require ERISA plans, thinking of an employer-sponsored plan, to adopt any particular scheme of substantive coverage. It doesn't tell you how to administer the plan. Really, it's governing the PBMs and how they have to do their reimbursement rates. Additionally, the law does not refer to ERISA. It's not essential for the law to operate based on ERISA because it applies to all PBMs without regards to whether they manage an ERISA plan or not. So really, it's interesting enough that they cited and said, no, ERISA doesn't pre-exempt. Um, so what we kind of see is that states may now kind of have the green light to go ahead and start issuing these new regulations that they can impose on PBMs. As I mentioned, there hasn't been a lot of regulations on PBMs in the past. Um, so this kind of gives them the open door um, to go forward and do that. So for action items for our clients, especially if you are self-insured or working with a PBM, you should be working with them to ensure that they are complying to any state laws that may be applicable to them. Um, especially if you are in Arkansas, the law stands um, and you'll want to ensure that your PBMs are complying with the requirements. And then also be on the lookout for probably states doing continuing uh, laws on it, issuing new regulations on it. I think I saw another one in Georgia about a PBM. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it'll be that, you know, novel but it will be interesting from an administrative perspective. I think if you have a self-funded plan that spans nationally, being aware of the different state laws that could be impacted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think on the competition side too, um, just that it's really probably a great help for those independent pharmacies, the small pharmacists, et cetera, who are having a hard time with the reimbursements that they were getting from the PBMs. So yep. Uh, yeah, and hopefully, so you know, it'll probably maybe shed a little bit more light on transparency. I think you mentioned earlier, it's kind of mm -hmm. one of their initiatives is drug price, drug price transparency. So maybe this will help that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it's probably a good thing that PBMs start getting a little bit of regulation, but... <laughs> Yeah, um, well, uh, and, you know, any sort of supply chain, when you think about it, that has any middlemen, we mm -hmm. know that typically that adds to the cost of things, but, um, so, you know, it's whether or not the cost is worth what the service is. And so I think that those are all things that they're really going to start examining. And I'd say would be pretty consistent between the Trump administration and the incoming Biden administration, too. I think everybody's uh, there's pretty much bipartisan support in that somebody's got to look at, at, at the cost of prescription drugs, that that's mm -hmm. a significant um, problem to deal with and that, uh, you know, figuring out how to get those better under control and have better um, access and uh, and cost for, you know, the American public is, is really paramount. So, yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. That was great. Yep. 
So moving on to kind of the third kind of, I guess, branch of what we're going to talk about. Let's talk about the regulatory or the administrative agency. So we have some updates and regulations. Um, first one I'm going to talk about, I'll cover is, I'm sure you all are know, the ACA plan limits. We get those every year, kind of these updates to the cost of living adjustments. Um, and then I'll turn it over to Annette, who will cover the transparency rule. Also talk about the 2022 notice of benefit payment parameters. And then we have some helpful reminders for you at the end. So the first thing I want to talk about is the PCORI fee. So we have an update on to what that number is. So uh, just as a reminder, what PCORI stands for, it's the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute. Um, and so these fees are funded by health insurers and then sponsors of self-insured health plans. Um, Previously, the fees only applied in from, I think, plan years from October 1st, 2012 to October 1st, 2019. They were supposed to be phased out, but due to budget legislation that was passed at the end of 2019, so last year, um, it reinstated the PCORI fee, um, and it continues it until the end of October 1st, 2029. And I think it might have just been a trade-off for removal of the Cadillac tax. So they got rid of the Cadillac tax. They probably just brought back the PCORI fee. On um, the updated fees for plan years beginning or ending on, excuse me, ending on October 1st, 2020 and before October 1st, 2021 is $6.66. Just a reminder that this is due uh, to be filed with the IRS on Form 720. You do this on July 31st by July 31st of the calendar year, immediately following the last day of the plan to which the fee applies. So you have a little bit of time, but just updated fee amounts. The next update I want to talk about is for the ACA. Again, we do have our annual adjustments for the cost of living. So for the affordability, that's increased to 9.83% for 2021. Again, this goes to determining whether the an ALE has provided affordable coverage for their employees. So you're going to look at the employee's required contribution should not exceed this limit, which is 9.83. It went up. 2020 was 9.78. Additionally, the update, of course, is the penalty. So the subsection A penalty, that's the penalty that's associated to whether you've offered it to enough of your full-time employees. Penalty increased. Um, it's up to 2,700 for 2021. They also updated the subsection B penalty, and that's the penalty for when you're offering inadequate coverage to your full-time employees. So it doesn't meet minimum value and it's not affordable. Um, the penalty for that one increased as well to $4,060. Um, just a reminder, this penalty is capped, so it cannot exceed the amount of the subsection A penalty. And then finally, we have some updates from the IRS just related to our tax accounts. So for our health FSAs for 2021, the dollar limit remains intact, hasn't changed. So it's 2,750. The same for our qualified transportation fringe benefits. The monthly limit remains the same at $270. If you are a non-ALE offering a qualified small employer HRA or QSERA, the maximum amount of payments and reimbursement for self-only coverage is $5,300. And it for family coverage is $10,700. Both of those increased from 2020. The accepted benefits, HRA, um, so that came out when we, with the ICRAs or the individual coverage HRAs, that one also remains unchanged. So for 2021, the maximum amount for there is 1,800. Great. 
Thanks. Um, kind of taking a look at this uh, transparency rule that came out. So final rules came out in October um, for the transparency and coverage. And of course, this delivers some um, final methods that enable consumers to kind of know what the cost of healthcare is. So that's been one of the contentions. I have no idea how to plan or budget or shop for coverage because I don't really know what anything costs. And so um, it's no secret that the cost of, you know, healthcare goods and services has continued to increase. It's been um, one of the pillars of the, the Trump administration throughout the past four years, many executive orders um, dealing with that. In 2019, Trump came out with his executive order called Improving Price and Quality Transparency in American Healthcare to put patients first. And that acknowledged this gap in consumer information, you know, that we don't have the information to be able to make good purchasing decisions when it comes to health care. So it, uh, that regulation um, had required hospitals to publicly disclose standard charge amounts, um, have health care providers, health insurers, self-insured plans, provide information on expected out-of-pocket costs to help people understand when they're receiving care, um, had reporting in there and some additional steps um, about surprise billing in the original one. So the new rule really um, builds upon this. So the details of the final rule are these. It, um, it applies to all group health plans and health insurance issuers in both the individual and the group markets. And so what it does is beginning with plan years effective on or after January 1st of 2022, the rule requires plans to make publicly available standardized and regularly updated data files. So in other words, they've got a they've got a state what would they pay for certain things, for certain charges? How much would the out-of-pockets be for individuals? And then beginning with the, the, in the, so they've got to make these data files available. And then beginning in January of 2023, they have to provide online shopping tools for people. So um, you would be able to go on for your plan, know exactly um, what is the negotiated rate, what uh, will the provider actually charge? So if they're in network, what's my what's the network cost? How much is my plan going to pay based upon whether I've satisfied my deductible or not, et cetera. And then, so you would have that personalized out-of-pocket expense. So you would know, what can I budget for? And they would do this for the 500 most shoppable services. And then in 2024, it would expand to everything. So you'd have this online shopping tool for everything, including prescription drugs. So um, those are big changes for the industry. And there's been a lot of contention around that. Oh, and I, the, sorry, I didn't paint up these for you to read as we're going. But um, there's been a lot of contention around some of these issues. Um, I know that the the original hospital transparency rule that came out, the hospitals filed suit saying that, no, they can't, you know, they can't um, provide that information. And, you know, that's um, basically taking away their competitive edge, et cetera. So there's a lot of things um, that have happened in and around that. Um, but this is the final rule now moving forward. The uh, this also would require a couple of disclosures. So uh, the health plan or the issuer. So if you're fully insured, the insurance carrier would would normally do this. 
um, or if you're self-funded, you as a plan administrator would have to provide participants and beneficiaries or any enrollees or anybody who asks that's enrolling, you would have to give them certain notice and disclosures. And those things, you can see this whole list of items that has to be there. So you would have to disclose what the required cost sharing is after the insurance pays and after discounts. So you a real life, what's my number? What do I, what do I have to pay? Also be able to show the accumulated amounts, how much deductible have I met? Have my kids met? Um, has the family met today? All of those, if it's a, a type of service that I only get, you know, 20 visits per year, how many have I used already? So a real interactive type of disclosure. So people can actually be really well informed when they're, um, making next appointments or trying to figure out if they schedule a certain procedure, et cetera. And then there are required notices that have to be made in plain language. So, you know, that there might be balanced billing um, or surprise billing, unless the surprise billing piece gets passed. Um, And then actual charges might differ from estimates, you know, so just some basic pieces that kind of tell people this is as close as we can get to planning, but there might be some changes if the services are different at the time than what you anticipated they were going to be, um, those types of things. And then also then the methods for disclosure are here as well. So internet self-based tools have to, self-service kind of tools have to be written in plain English. You can't charge for them. Um, And they have to provide real time um, information. So it has to be accurate at the moment that people are looking and show some of those pieces that you see there, you know, the name of the network provider, et cetera. Now they also have to provide the opportunity to get it in paper. And that paper has to be turned around within two days of a request and show no less than like the the top 20 providers in in a particular area, or they have to have and staff, you know, people to respond to phone mails or emails also. So yeah, like a massive administrative, like I'd be interested to see (laughs) what vendors come to the table. I mean, yeah, yeah, it comes into effect in 2020. 2022, that's not a lot of time, I think. And there's a ton of data that they need to kind of build out to understand how to, you know, prepare this for employees or beneficiaries. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so the, a big thing too, is that they've kind of given some incentives saying, you know, the medical loss ratio that in the individual and the um, group marketplace um, carriers have to spend a certain amount of premium dollars, right? 80 or 85% have to be spent on clinical services or claim reimbursement or any activities that improve the quality of healthcare. And if they don't spend that 80 or 85%, they have to return funds to um, the patients or the plant participants, right? So this medical loss ratio has been part of the Affordable Care Act. And I know a number of our groups have gotten checks back from carriers because they didn't meet their requirement. Well, what they've said is if an an insurance carrier actually spends money to put this infrastructure in, they can count this as um, expense dollars that that um, help them get to that 80 or 85%. So it's not like they have to spend the dollars and then they're gonna still have to pay out more because they didn't meet their obligation. They're gonna allow it to be included. So, um, So that's one incentive, but to your point, I mean, 
it's a, it's heavy lifting for sure. Yeah. I just wonder from like a self funded or a self insured group, I mean, do they get some type of credit or something from, you know, implementing it because they're probably going to have their own kind of fees, right? I mean, well, most of them use, I would think most, right. Most of them use third-party administrators, or they'll use an insurance carrier under an administrative-only agreement. And so the ones who are with uh, carriers will probably be in the best shape because the carriers will be doing it for the fully insured anyway, and it'll be the same structure. Now, will it cost them something? Probably. Yeah. You know, there'll probably be fees added on, but um, but otherwise TPAs are going to have to figure out the same thing, the third-party administrators who are, are doing that. So good point. Yeah. So I definitely think this will stir innovation. I think we'll see new stuff coming out. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, which actually is always good. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, um, and then the second piece I just wanted to briefly touch on is this, uh, 2022 notice of benefit payment and payments and parameters. So this is also a part of the Affordable Care Act. This comes out every year, every year, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is part of the Department of Health and Human Services, they release rules um, that propose whatever the new limits are for the ACA and how exchanges operate and any changes in process. And so those typically, I don't know, they come out um, in the... um, probably in early, like the 2022 rules would probably come out early 2021, right? And be finalized kind of by the end of summer of 2021 or so. Well, they came out early. So they these just came out and um, the release came, came late November. So it's a little bit earlier, but not not necessarily. I mean, uh, President Obama did the same thing in 2016 when Trump was coming in, was to get these out because they know there's going to be a change in regime. And so getting these um, these rules introduced earlier, uh, they'll still have to be finalized, will be um will be important as, you know, people are changing jobs, there's new people coming in, et cetera. So it's not unusual. So here's a couple of the things that we see that we've seen in the 2022. And this uh, starts to get insurance carriers and maybe health plans thinking about beyond 2021, what's coming. So in uh, with regard to plan limits, we can see that the ACA compliant plans, um, there will be an increase to the maximum out-of-pocket amount. So that'll be $9,100 for self-only coverage and $18,200 for other than self-only. Um, that is a 6.4% increase over um, 2021, which was $8,550 and $17,100. They also... Um, the required contribution for um, the cost sharing. Um, So people who are eligible for subsidies, um, for cost sharing subsidies. So some people are eligible for help with their their premium, but others that are below 250% of the federal poverty line also get premium tax credits or assistance, actually not credits, but they get assistance with the out-of-pocket costs. They actually have to pay less out-of-pocket costs and it's a sliding scale. So those limits are here for people who uh, have income between 100 and 200% of the federal poverty line. They 
they will, uh, their maximum out-of-pocket will be 3,000 and then 6,000 for other than self-only coverage. And then for those with income 200 to 250% of the federal poverty level, it's 7,250 for self-only and then 14,500 for other self-only. Now there's some really interesting things in this 2022 benefit payment, uh, payments and parameters that came out that, um, I think are interesting things to think about. Now, state-based exchanges, um, there, have, there has been some movement in um, some of the waivers for exchanges. And I know employers don't typically really think a lot about the exchanges other than, gosh, if an employee leaves, maybe that's where they get coverage or whatever. However, so one of the things that just happened in November of 2019 George, the state of Georgia filed a 1332 waiver. So under section 1332 of the Affordable Care Act, um, states are allowed to petition the Department of Health and Human Services if they want to modify some of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act to make it work better for their states. And there are certain guardrails, certain things they can do and other things that they can't and things they have to guarantee, like they can't add to the to the debt limit um, by doing so. Um, however, one of the things, so Georgia filed for their 1332 waiver and, and a number of states have, but one of the interesting things that they re requested was that they said, like, we don't want to be in the federal exchange anymore. So they didn't have a state-based exchange like some of the other states have their own. They use the federally facilitated marketplace. So the state, the, the federal exchange. So they requested that they pull out of the federal exchange, create their own state-based exchange. However, that the enrollment part of the state-based exchange not be handled by the exchange at all, but be handled on insurance carrier websites and with third-party web brokers, so insurance brokers. So the exchange would actually do things like still meet all the statutory and regulatory requirements where they approve what are the qualified health plans, who's eligible, verify applicants' information, and then issue the actual premium tax credits. But what they wouldn't do that the federal marketplace and all state pace exchanges do today is they wouldn't do the enrollment process, which is really the big heavy lifting is trying to get everybody enrolled, right? And so they would leave that to the insurance carriers and the brokers to do handle all the enrollments and they would handle the back end. And so this just got approved by um, HHS. And so what this notice of benefit payment parameters does is it now says, hey, any, any state can do this and you don't have to file a 1332 waiver, which is very a very cumbersome and long process. You don't have to do that. We will do an expedited approval process if any state-based exchange or anybody participating in the federal exchange wants to do that. And so effective for plan years for the uh, 2022 plan year, um, state-based exchanges could choose to go down this path and pull and run, which would save the state a lot of money, if you think about it, and probably work a little bit better because the infrastructure that the carriers have and um, these web brokers have um, 
to get a lot of people enrolled more quickly and shop better might be a better fit. And then in 2023, that would extend out to anybody in the federally facilitated marketplace that they could do the same. So that's a very interesting process from the enrollment process, and that might change things quite a bit. And so we may see some expansion, different things with that um, you know, the better um, enrollment and something to think about for when it comes to the shopping process, especially for employees who leave, you know, or are terminated, et cetera. So their alternative to COBRA, of course, is individual coverage. And so if that shopping experience could be easier, better, faster, um, more intuitive, maybe that's something that that has some impact for employers. On the medical loss ratio, I just talked about that with the, the other provision, And so there's a couple of uh, changes here, which I think uh, are very interesting. So it does make changes to the medical loss ratios um, by by and to pharmacy benefit managers. So this comes full circle, Samantha. (laughs) Um, By establishing definitions of prescription drug rebates. So what is a drug rebate? What are other price concessions, et cetera? And mandating that when the carrier, the insurance carriers report what their medical loss ratio is, they have to make sure that they deduct from the amount that they're spending that 80 or 85% that has to be spent on improving quality care or paying claims, that they're backing out any of those rebates or discounts they're receiving. And so um, they take that into account and they can't say, oh, you know, we get that money too and not, you know, and not have to, to report that. The only difference would be is if those re, those rebates are actually going directly to the consumers, the people buying, purchasing the drugs, then they don't have to take that into consideration, but otherwise they do. So it does um, change that. So that's one thing that I think fairly significant for medical loss ratio, which could put a lot of carriers having to pay more money back than they have in the past. Um, The other thing it does is it it does um, clarify reporting and rebating requirements, uh, allows some grace period during the the public health emergency, right, um, to allow carriers to prepay part of the monies that they owe and then make up the difference so they're allowed to kind of pay do partial payments rather than, you know, paying it all at once and also to defer any remaining rebates uh, after prepayment until after the reporting period. So it just gives them a little bit more flexibility. Um, Yeah, yeah, on those. So I think that's probably the biggest piece on that one. And then the last piece that's pretty interesting are these special enrollment periods. So, um, in this, um, the potential changes to enrollment periods would be these, that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service, appro- uh, they propose allowing the current current exchange enrollees and dependents to enroll in a brand new qualified health plan at a lower metal tier if they if they become ineligible for premium tax credits. So in other words, I'm a family, my income changes, right? And I lose or the amount, I lose my tax credit, or the amount of my tax credit is significantly less. This would create a special enrollment period where I could go in and say, hey, 
I have a gold plan. I'm going to go to a silver plan because I don't want to pay for the gold plan because I have more money and premiums coming out of, my pack, out of my pocket. That wasn't a special enrollment period before, but that change in cost well is pretty consistent with other types of um, change in status requirements we see like on the on the cafeteria plan side. So they're doing that here. So as people lose their premium tax credits, they can make some other plan choices to a lower level if they need to. Uh, and the second thing that it does is it allows individuals and enrollees or dependents who didn't get timely notice of special enrollment periods uh, or a special enrollment period triggering event. Um, so they didn't know that they were eligible and then they didn't enroll on time that they would be given a new 60 day window to enroll when they do understand. So I was trying to figure out like, when does this ever happen? But apparently it happens quite often. And especially if um, for some reason, either there was something wrong with the payment or premium or something got uh, misinterpreted or whoever was carrying the coverage on a particular participant drops that coverage and and never notifies the participant, which could happen in certain, you know, in certain types of families, things happen. Um, And then you don't know, you don't have coverage till you get to the doctor's office. And they're like, I'm sorry, you have no coverage. And so that's kind of where they're talking about here. And so this, uh, there would be a process whereby somebody could say, there was no way I knew. So they would get a new, a new enrollment window. Another one is that it would designate um, if somebody loses their COBRA continuation employer payment. So if you as an employer are paying for COBRA uh, for some part of COBRA, a certain number of months based on a severance agreement or whatever, if you as an employer are paying COBRA for somebody and then you stop paying COBRA and they're still on COBRA, Um, that would create a special enrollment period. It it doesn't right now, but it would create a special enrollment period in the individual market so that people would be able to hop off the expense of COBRA coverage and go buy something less expensive, you know, in theory. And then um, the last piece it would do is... um, Uh, It requires exchanges to conduct special enrollment period verifications for at least 75% of new enrollments. So just doing better due diligence on who's in there. The other thing that it does, um, which is interesting, is it does require that for any of you who are um, looking at individual coverage HRAs for your employees or for a portion of your employees. And we hope to have lots of new information coming out soon for you on that. Um, If you haven't talked to your consultants, it might be something to explore to see if it's a fit. But for employers who are going to pay some uh, premium for individual coverage under um, the individual coverage HRA, which is the only way that an employer can pay for premium in the individual market. So it's very specific. Um, But if employers are going to pay the actual premium to the carrier on behalf of that individual, this particular benefit payment parameter mandates that the exchanges have to, and the qualified health plans have to accept payment um, from a third party on somebody's behalf. So, and that hasn't existed before. So anyway, the public comment period on this particular rule ends at the, it was really short. So it just came out and ends December 28th. So um, presumably, you know, it's going to be finalized sometime in the future. However, incoming 
President-elect Biden and the administration may choose to change some of these rules. And they can't change law without an act of Congress, but they could change some of the rules that come forward. And so it'll be interesting to watch coming forward how those might be affected. So last, a couple of reminders, a couple of takeaways for you, things to watch for. So first, things to discuss, definitely discuss with your consultants what the impact of maybe the upcoming provisions of maybe the transparency rule might be if you've got a self-funded plan um, or set some timeline for compliance or things you want to think about disclosing to your employees as those things come to fruition. Also, when Samantha was talking about the potential impact of that pharmacy benefit manager um, case from Supreme Court and the decision in Arkansas, it'd be wise to start looking at your individual states to see if they're taking some similar action and how that might affect the plan. The next thing is really watch for these next developments, developments um, for the add-ons for the budget bill, like we talked about, maybe more COVID-19 support, um, the surprise billing piece and potential maybe le- extension of leave laws under FFCRA because those expire. So uh, that be vigilant for those. Um, the IRS did come out and say form 7200, 70, 70, let me get that out. 7200, the advanced payment of the employer credits due to COVID-19. So these are a lot of the tax credits that uh, employers are able to co- claim, they're just notifying you that there's going to, if you file them at the end of December, don't expect anything till like mid-January, they're going to, you're going to see a delay. And part of that is holidays. The other part is you've got a changing of the guard. So you have new people coming in and old people going out. And so work does back up normally during this time. So they're warning that. And then the last thing is just a reminder. It came out last, uh, late last in 2019 and then was reiterated or finalized in early 2020, but there there is a new summary of benefits and coverage form and uniform glossary for 2021. And and when you get a copy of the slides, um, which will come to you uh, uh, after the session, Um, in the next day or two. This is an actual link that'll take you to the site to see the new SBC form and the uniform glossary. Make sure you're using those for plan years effective 1-1-2021. So just in January 1st. Um, If you've already gone, we talked about this a little bit, uh, right, Samantha, if if they've gone through open enrollment already before, you know, and they haven't used this form, I mean, the best best advice is that they should use the form um, and redistribute it. It can't hurt to send everybody a new copy of the one that has a couple changes on it, a couple enhancements, um, but that would be, we would always tell you to, to do that, uh, that that would be best practice. Yeah, just kind of, you know, trying to hit that good faith, best effort to try to comply with the law. I'm sure your fully insured carriers are complying. I think the difference, I feel you correct me if I'm wrong. I think the actual pages are like four or five pages now. There's an actual extra page. Yeah, exactly. Before, so. Yeah, I think there is an extra page to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, so those should probably be in play. If you're fully insured, you probably don't have to worry about it. It's if you have a health reimbursement arrangement in HSA or uh, have a self-funded plan that you'll have to make some modifications there. So, yeah, it just means like, don't go back to your old document. Maybe you have saved on your desktop. <laughs> make sure you're always pulling <laughs> the latest and greatest. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 
So with that, thank you all um, for your time and attention today. We really appreciate it. We wish you um, healthy, happy holiday season and new year and looking for hopefully a much better um, and exciting 2021. So with that, thanks everybody. And we'll see you next time. 